Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host this week, Dave Gibney. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Michelle Byrne and Claire O'Connor. The Week at Work is part of Left Block. Uh, we're an online, mostly, at this moment in time, politi political education and uh, alternative media project. Um, if you want to know more about us and want to support us, and we'd really ask that people chip in if they possibly can, because we really want to roll this platform out as quickly and as fast as possible. You can find out more about us on patreon.com forward slash left block. That's left block with no K. Um, without further ado, as usual, what we normally do is we go and we review the front pages of the newspaper. So I'll go straight to you, Michelle. What have you been looking at this week? So I picked up the Irish Independent on Saturday and I just want to flag that I got this because of a juicy story inside it. So I have actually read the paper um, and the front page is not unlike a lot of the other front pages and it's uh, Delta Gamble, children to dine indoors with adults. So obviously this is the big news, the indoor dining news that's coming. Um, it talks about how you know, the government are taking it. A major gamble is actually the language that's being used. Um, and like you wonder like, is this the time to take your major gamble when, uh, you know, if, if that's how it's being portrayed? So obviously Tony Houlihan is up, up against it. He's saying like he's war warning against children being allowed to dine indoors. Uh, the Minister for Health is saying, you know, maybe should only be under the age of 12. But the rules that have come out now have said that children under the age of 18 um, that are accompanying adults are allowed to dine indoors if they're not vaccinated. Um, so obviously this is... Uh, generating a lot of conversation like yesterday the you know the department of health reported 1286 new cases um and there is that whole conversation of you know how do we measure how do we measure the impact of covid at the moment because we're talking about cases but are we talking about long covid and we we chat about that last week on the pod but yeah so it, it looks like um people who are vaccinated or who have been who have recovered from covid in the last six months can eat in and drink indoors now with no time limits and so you can do even do it one meter apart you don't have to do two meters apart but there's also things around like you know having to give your name and number of every person in the party so like that to me is a serious amount of extra work for the workers who are going to have to deal with that and potentially gdpr issues i don't really know what's going on there i'm sure someone else who's involved in that area will kind of um delve into that a little bit more but i just thought it was a really interesting line um in in the story as well where me martin says you know the government is trying to balance the need to reopen the economy and like I said last week I was like why is no one calling this a herd immunity strategy and I did see one article this week since then that mentions the word but it really is like how do we balance making money and the amount of people that are going to be seriously um, unwell from this like and I just think yeah yeah it's like I think it's like one in a thousand people are going to catch COVID out of the back of this so like I do, I do sorry maybe don't quote me on that I, I have it written down somewhere but yeah it, it is that whole how do we balance the economy how do we make sure that profits still been made um yes we know we're taking a gamble we know there's health risks we know we're, the the numbers are increasing and at a very high level um but yeah that's the main the main story on the front of the irish independence day um talking about the children indoors and adults and i know like i've seen some um businesses this week saying that they're not going to reopen for different reasons or whatever um and others saying that maybe children shouldn't be allowed you know that that's difficult but yeah I'm sure the, the front stories of other papers as well will kind of tie into it and maybe we'll delve into that story a little bit more later on yeah the the front page again of the Irish Times has that story is the main one vaccination well not it's not exactly that one but uh it's related has vaccination of vulnerable children likely to be next priority um, so obviously I'll go through that story just very quickly before I move on to the indoor dining stuff because that's a subheading in this story um, but what it is is uh, 
the government government sources believe NIAC uh, may opt for a conservative approach along the lines that authorities have opted for in Britain. Children in the UK will get a COVID vaccine only if they were over 12 and extremely vulnerable or live with someone at risk. So it's, to, be honest, to be honest, like it sounds like a very sensible position to take. Um, children who are vulnerable uh, should be protected from the worst excesses of this. It's actually surprising that it's taken this long. Now, I understand that it's taken this long because they, they had to do extra tests and be extra careful because it's children you're talking about here. Um, but yesterday, the uh, European Medicines Agency gave the green light for Moderna jab to be used for children aged between 12 and 17. Um, and they said that the studies have now showed that there's no new side effects from the vaccine in children. So we're moving towards that space. The unfortunate part about it is even the headline and, and, and reading through it is you just know that this is going to be used as ammunition for the far right uh, immediately. That's that's where this is going to go is all children, protect children and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. When they won't take any responsibility when a child gets very seriously ill on the back of this, especially vulnerable children, um, including not knowing the impacts of uh, long COVID or, or post COVID syndrome, as it's officially called. So, Claire, you want, think you wanted in just quickly on that? Yeah, I suppose, like, I think the government's communication over the past year and a half has just been absolutely dire. It's been one of the worst one of the worst elements of how they've handled this they've caused so much unnecessary stress and so much unnecessary drama just because of a lack of communication I mean, we talked about how they'll announce a service without letting you know the people providing the service know they 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 come up with these five point systems that end up in nine point systems you know and it's just constantly this lack of transparency and this lack of just really simple communication and what that has done is really fed into the far right it's really fed into conspiracy theories and as we move towards i'm seeing there was always people getting sucked in by the far right and the conspiracy theories. I think there's a lot more, you know, even more reasonable people around the vaccine passport, around the, um, the you know, indoor dining and stuff like that. People's fears are being kind of spiked around, like, is this going to, you know, the, the language around that has been absolutely horrific. But again, it's people very consciously exploiting people's genuine fears to to draw, you know, to, to, to store up this kind of anger and hatred. So I just really hope when it comes to, kids being vaccinated that they're really careful with their language and that they really take the time to communicate it properly to you know to make sure people know this is a choice you know put all the information out there let people have the choice like I'd have friends of vulnerable kids and they would be getting they you know they would only be delighted like one of them was onto the, her school last year like she wouldn't send her child back until the vaccine was available and she didn't think that could be another year or two you know so I think she like there's people who'll be really happy to see this happening now um they just need to be careful because I've already seen online editions of the papers over the past couple of days. Just really irresponsible reporting. Um, you know, vac kid, a vaccine for kids next. And then you go into the comments and it's like, they're not going to let kids back to school. This, this is the start of it. We've been saying this from the start. And it's just, if they're not careful, they're just feeding that stuff. And I, like those groups are just an absolute cesspit. So yeah, that, that's, that's my big worry. I think it's great. I think it's great that the... The research has been done that they're going to declare it safe, but I just think that it needs to be very clear that this is a choice. It's available for anybody who wants it and um, just don't let them take the, take this and get lives and run with it. Yeah, but like how many times have we been saying about this communication piece since the very start? Like, was it only last week there was like four announcements in the space of a day or changing reg like different regulations and all? And this week, what they've managed to do is, and it's in, it's in the Irish Times as well, the online portal for the COVID certs launched with a typo in the domain like 
ah, like lads come on the, this is we're talking about the very basics they can't even get the basics right never mind actually communicating really sensitive information in a really clear and understandable way they've actually and somebody and somebody else has registered the correct name yeah. now i mean it's so, it's so luckily luckily they they were the good guys who did that and they went in and they registered the correct name so now if you actually spell the name of the website right which is a dot org domain by the way which some people find a bit odd considering it's a, an official government website usually that would be die um just to add the levels of confusion and miss and like you know erode some more trust while we're at it just spell the domain wrong use dot org and then have it when you actually spell the thing right you're bound to this like obviously jokey website with like a really badly drawn government.ie uh logo in paint um with the link to the correct site but like the, some real concerns there because you know, if, if that hadn't been done by someone who was obviously like very much like trying to direct people to the right website, that could have been really, um, you know, jumped on and misused and you, they could have um, put up a copy site and collected people's details and personal details um, and ended up in the wrong hands. Now, luckily it was the lads of, you know, people are joking about it and they're like, ah, yeah, it's great. They've, you know, they've got the real domain name with the right spelling and maybe the government will buy it off them at this rate. I don't know, but it cost them 16 euro anyway to do it and a 16 euro well spent, I think, anyway. In yours and uh, look I, I think maybe they might have bought the dot org one because it is that cheap i dot ies are more expensive than dot org so perhaps that's the logic behind that side of it but yeah on the communication stuff um we saw this a couple of weeks ago with the pharmacies being told you know w one day you guys are going to be uh vaccinating young people by the way we haven't had a conversation which is about it but here you go and then the the pharmacies are flooded with um with people, young people panicking, trying to get the vaccine as early as possible, right? And then this stuff, new draft guidelines for the hospitality sector were issued by Falcha Ireland last night. So they, these guidelines were issued last night, a Friday night after the working day is done. Um, and perhaps that was done deliberately, I don't know, but you would think that they would have had this ready two, three weeks ago so that bars and restaurants could prepare themselves for what the guidelines are. I mean, part of the guidelines, right? because I've been looking into them in detail, part of them are to have, <clears throat> without exception, sort of, um, CO2 monitors, right? Now, if you're a, a pub and it's a Friday night and you're expected to open on Monday, where the hell are you going to get a CO2 monitor now? Because of the, the, the concerns around the ventilation and how that helps with the transmission of the disease, right? But second of all, why is Falcha Ireland issuing these guidelines? Why is it not a department? Uh, what I mean... Falta Ireland in my head was always about tourism and all the rest of it, right? It's not a sort of a healthcare or, or, or workplace guidance sort of stuff. It's sort of, yeah, it just seems to have less authority because these guidelines are coming from Falta Ireland. And maybe that's deliberate. Maybe it's a sort of a sop to the to the industry itself to say, look, lads, we're not really taking this seriously. But as you said, uh, Michelle, <clears throat> they, uh, the guidelines provide for two meter distancing uh, where possible. But if not possible, one meter distancing. And you're like, <laughs> what kind of guidelines does that like? You know, if you can do this, fine. But if not, fine too. Uh, so, um, but yeah, there's a lot involved in it. You have to have a digital COVID certificate to be, uh, that's the primary evidence of proof of immunity, immunity or vaccination when going into a pub. Other proofs of immunity will be uh, set out in regulations, which will be published by Sunday. So they're going to publish the regulations by Sunday for the bars to operate on Monday. How do businesses operate in that in that fashion? Like, it's just mad. Um, closing time will be 11.30 p.m. There's no time limit this time on a period one can dine. Um, 
from what I could read, I think it's six people to a party, but you can bring your children uh, if, if you want. And parties can be up to 13 if you have underage people there with you by the looks of it. Um, some of this stuff might be incorrect. I, I, I need to go through some of it. Uh, face coverings should be worn by customers at all times other than when seated at their table. One interesting thing I found was that you have to get a pass if you're going for a smoke break. So if you if you've, you've do no time limits here, but you need to get a pass. Um, and somebody has to be at the door to give you that pass that you then return. Uh, there's a lot of guidelines, a lot of bureaucracy by the sounds of things involved. And not, I'm, not, I'm not complaining necessarily about the bureaucracy. The bit that you mentioned there about taking the names of people, that, that's been the position up north for, for since last year. Uh, you go into a restaurant, they take everybody's name and number. Um, or, I'm sorry, it might not be everybody's name and number, but it's, it's the primary person who's organised it, and I, and I think there might be some places that take all of them. But um, Yeah, it, it's primary at the moment here, but it's now moving to every single individual. But, like, you talk about the bureaucracy there. But like, how are the businesses supposed to, one, implement all of these guidelines in time for Monday so that it actually is what they deem to be a safe reopening, even if they are trying to hear all those guidelines, how are they supposed to get the staff to manage to know what they're supposed to do? Like we're here trying to figure out the guidelines that are coming out in dribs and drabs. How are the staff implementing this supposed to do it? And also like, how are they going to get the staff to do this? They're talking about extra staff on the front door and every other entrance to, to monitor if people are coming in and out. So what they're saying is staff, but what they mean is probably security by the sounds of it. Um, but where are they getting these? There's literally stories here about demand for staff increasing. We've heard about the shortages um, due to whatever that is. People have found other jobs. They're not getting paid enough to put their, their health at risk or whatever the, the, the issues are there. How are businesses supposed to do this and how is that like how is it supposed to actually function it just is not adding up for me anyway well I, I actually don't mind it too much a lot of the bureaucracy i think some of this is necessary in, in, in times like these but my biggest problem is the short notice these people the, the businesses are being told and then yes of course the primary concern i would have being from a trade union background is workers right and it shouldn't be the job of a worker to police this and it appears to me that there doesn't, well, nothing in the papers today about who, you know, having a designated person that's going to be dealing with this. It does say you need to have a staff member on every single door, or every single entry to the premises, right? So that's a, a concern um, in, in for, 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 for businesses, but also the business itself is going to select somebody more than likely to be there. And these won't be trained people, in, in a lot of circumstances, won't be trained people on how to, deal with abusive customers and and let's be fair about it let's be honest about it um there's a lot of agitation around some of this stuff we've seen it on online throughout the world actually people being asked look you need to wear a mask while you're walking through here oh you're you're oppressing me the far right stuff you're going to expect a waiter or a waitress to deal with that type of behavior i mean they should have had these guidelines published from a long time ago so that bars could hire people for Monday to specifically deal with that sort of situation. How are they meant to hire people between now, Friday night and Monday morning to deal with aggressive people, trained people, you know, with private security authorities stamp and all the rest of it. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, uh, we need guidelines. We need all of that stuff. It's just about the timing and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know. Do we want to move on to the next story there? Uh, Michelle, have you got another one? Or Claire, do you want to jump in? 
Uh, yeah, I'll, so basically I had a look at the examiner and I, I ended up reading the, the Friday examiner by uh, accident, so I did the Friday and the Saturday. Um, the big story on the front of the Saturday examiner is the, the family of Cameron Blair asking whose family would be next to get the dreaded phone call. And they're talking about knife crime, um, which, you know, we, we talked about it recently in the inner city. There was, a, you know, five or six stabbings in the space of, you know, a day and a half in the inner city there recently enough. And it is becoming a real issue and it's, it, it becomes a a vicious cycle the more people that are carrying knives the more people you know particularly young people in a certain area might feel like they have to carry knives to protect themselves and we've seen how this has gone in places like london and that and um this, this is just kind of asking for a a response to it and it's just the family asking for the government to basically do something about it um although you know personally i think that means that means investment in the communities where this is happening most and it means actually addressing the issues that that cause people to um you know to get involved in in criminality and crime and and gang violence yeah um yeah uh, i'm gonna move on there i don't know michelle if you have another story there you want to oh yeah well i wanted to get into some of the housing stuff so i obviously i mentioned it last week where Dara Brian has, Brian has tried to essentially call his housing plan after what, uh, what all the activists have been shouting at him for like the last I don't know many years, housing for all. But anyway, um, as much as he might have got the name down and it, you know, to pander towards people, and um, he hasn't even got the plan ready to go. So I don't know where 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 we're going to go with this. But essentially, I've I've read the two articles on it, one in the the Times and one in the Independent, and you kind of get bits of information from both of it. Um, so essentially, yeah, so basically there's this kind of narrative being played out like they're insisting that it's not because of infighting um, of leaders that the delay is happening. Michal Martin and Leo have said it's not because of infighting, but in The Independent it's talking about how it, it's actually Dara and uh, the Minister for Finance, Pascal O'Donoghue, who are having the argument. So it's like the, the two leaders are saying nothing to see here, lads. But then the independent saying, oh, no, there very much is an argument happening. And it's happening between Pascal and Dara over money and whose budget's coming out and what's happening. So essentially um, what the Times is talking about is they're trying to um, fi finalise the last 5% of this plan, which apparently is around freeing up state-owned land so the land development agency can accelerate construction, development of rural towns, sustainable retrofitting and planning reform. But what the independent is saying to us, it's actually about a new first time buyer scheme for refurbishing vacant properties. So this is really interesting. So apparently this is where all the government tensions are actually lied according to the independent. So essentially he wants to, the existing help to buy scheme to be expanded to allow people buying vacant homes to apply for a tax rebate. So this is really interesting and it talks about how um, house hunters will be able to apply for a grant to renovate derelict houses, vacant derelict houses, um, looking at about 30 grand um, and maybe they'd start off with a pilot of about a thousand houses. Um, they even got the Rural Affairs Minister to comment on this on how it would be great for rural, bring on all these derelict houses. But when I was reading this, I was like, vacant houses, rural, like when I think of vacant houses, I think of all of the vacant houses in cities that are left sitting there um, to buy on purpose so that they can, um, you know, take um, take advantage of the markets and just sit on them for whenever they decide to sell. So it makes me think like those vacant properties that are being deliberately left empty, like are they going to now become like are people going to sell them then or are they going to add on that extra 30 grand uh, on top of the price that they were going to get anyway in, in a market with there's a huge demand? Um, I don't know, but it's just a, it's an interesting one and two very different stories been told. But something that was quite funny this week anyway, I, I noticed it online and social media was the panic 
that Fianna Fáil were definitely uh, feeling when they had announced the delay of this plan. Uh, we saw a video of Dara and a few lads uh, standing in a field <laughs> um, on Oscar Trainer Road and, you know, saying, and I literally had the housing for all branding in the corner, you know, just to say that this apparently is part of the plan. Um, but as many might be familiar here, it was obviously Oscar Trainer Road was the centre of a, a very large campaign over the last while. And a campaign that was essentially pushed back on a private developer front, but ended up being the councillors agreed to having like a much more publicly focused um, development on the road. But yeah, it was a little bit suspicious of his video on at the Oscar Trainer Road, him standing there, why is he making a big deal out of this? Like I had seen just a, a few weeks ago that one of the councillors in Dublin City Council actually said that they received a communication from council staff saying, oh, we know you voted for public building, uh, for public homes on this land, but actually we're still going to go ahead and just investigate that private developer uh, option with Glen Vey. Like completely anti-democratic as far as I'm concerned, when the councillors, the democratically elected councillors very rightly said, we do not want the plan that involved Glen Vey. We wanted a publicly, uh, publicly driven model. And then the council just said, oh, we're going to do it anyway. So the way that uh, Dara did this video was very vague doesn't necessarily say, I felt anyway that it was leaving more question marks than none. And the fact that he's drawn attention to it now off the back of a communication to councillors where they said, oh, well, actually, we're still actually investigating that other thing and we're spending a good bit of time on it. So I have a lot of concerns now that Dara is, Dara is going to, the Minister for Housing is going to try and push forward with that previous plan that councillors voted against um, and just dismiss the fact that they put forward another proposal that people backed. Um, and yeah, so maybe I think Claire wants to chat a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, this is just another example of the illusion of democracy where, you know, we, we think we actually have democratic processes until there's a public pushback and the government or the people in positions of power don't get their way. It was very clear from the get-go the night that the Oscar Trainer development was voted down that um, Brendan Kenny wasn't happy with it. He, you know... The, they all but threatened the councillors that this will happen anyway, that they were not that they weren't willing to like he was talking about the site that sit there empty for eight years. I mean, the absolute gall of a man responsible for this the site telling people that it could sit empty for eight years when it's his responsibility to actually have something done with it. What he's basically saying is is that we aren't capable of or refuse to to do any kind of alternative work because you're shooting down the one option that we wanted. I mean the the video, I was really worried watching the video because I, it was very clear to me that Dara O'Brien, he kept emphasising, uh, so Dara kept emphasising the, the time that's passed and he's responsible for the time that's passed. Like letters have been written to him from across the council, from the, the Lord Mayor, from councillors, from council officials, asking him to come back to them on the, the proposal that was put to them from the cross-party committee on the, on the Oscar trainer. And he didn't. So he's the one that has delayed this and yet he's now talking about the fact that so much time has passed and he doesn't he is speaking to the people who don't know the ins and outs of what's happened that's all he cares about you know what I mean like all he's all he's talking to is his voters so he's making out that what's going to happen is he's going to say we have to go back to the Glen Bay deal because nothing else materialized it's a year down the line nothing has happened we said this is what would happen so now we're going to completely ignore the truth and that's what's happened so often and I just hope that we do see I hope we see some journalism around it really actually represents the truth of what's happened and the 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 reality of what's going on around local democracy because I mean the LDA is already seriously eroding local democracy and this is a part of that. This was a that was a direct response to to the Oscar trainer as far as I'm concerned because it it was the first time that there was a real pushback in terms of gifting private land to private developers. Um, I've just seen 
online and um, the Irish Times Fintanot tool has a, a story of, you know from aristocrats to backups it's called but another investor fund basically has built is buying up 377 new apartments on Griffin, Griffin Avenue to be sold to a US property fund but this is across the road from Marino like one of the biggest you know forced uh publicly built um estates in in you know in Dublin in 1924 and it's just I suppose the juxtaposition of the two of them across the road each other just really highlights the difference of like Marino was a beautiful area. It was publicly built, you know, it's won loads of awards um, and it's still standing. And now across the road, after weeks of months in the doll, you know, government has talking about how they don't support the REITs and the cuckoo funds coming in and buying up all estates now happening. Yeah, it's uh, the housing stuff just keeps keeps coming and coming and rolling and rolling. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to, to say, uh, sort of related to housing, but not specifically, uh, was about the guy, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, former Davy boss who, who, who was reaped 79 million as Bank of Ireland sale heralds return of bankers bonus. Now, this is a guy who was just convicted or not convicted, but found guilty uh, of insider training. <laughs> and as Conor McCabe tweeted, he's punished with checks notes. A 79 million payoff. I mean, there's no other country in the world that provides this facility for certain classes of people to get away with uh, the sort of dodgy dealings that they get away with. But these are the people who are making the decisions around housing and about everything else. This is the inside circle. Um, not want to sound like a conspiracy theorist or anything, but um, the access that some of these people have to the decision making processes is far exceeds what we have in terms of lefties or anyone else. Um, yeah, I, I I wanted to cover one story. I'm going to I'm going to cover it now actually because it's I say it's one story, but it's actually a multitude of stories that we saw during the week, and it's really about um, the water shortages or, that we've apparently uh, unexpectedly encountered this year uh, for some reason. And I want to address it in the way that I sort of I like doing on this show uh, of looking at how the media covers this story which is interesting because there's been two types of articles that during the whole week, because we've got a heat wave obviously going on and we can talk about climate change in a second, because there's a lot of stuff around climate change that I wanted to get into, but the presentation that, you know, uh, the, the, the two ways that this is presented is explicit. And there was an article, I think it was on Tuesday by our friend, Brenda power um, in the Irish daily mail, the cowardly dropping of water charges has left us high and dry. And uh, now they're talking about, a drought, which to be fair to Harry McGee, who I don't agree with on water charges stuff, but in the Irish Times today, he says it's a dry spell. It's not a drought technically because we haven't reached the, the, the quantification to call it a, a drought. But anyway, the point I was going to make was there's two ways. There's the explicit way and, and, and saying that the cowardly, like we need water charges. That will solve our, all of our issues around water shortages. And then there's the uh, other subtle way that the, the media presents it, which is just keep talking about how water is a scarce resource and how we're suffering from a, a dry spell and all the rest of it. And then leave it to the last paragraph. To, with the bombshell to say, oh my God, this has all happened because we don't have water charges. Um, so just on this, right, there's one, the, the, as I mentioned, the Brenda Power piece. I, I read through the whole lot. I thought it was hilarious. Um, but in one part of it, she says, of all of the acts of political cowardice this country has uh, seen over the past half a century, the abandonment of the water charges scheme has to be the biggest capitulation to the smallest pro protest cohort in our history. Like, I'm going, seriously, did you see any of the protests for water charges? We're literally talking about tens of thousands of people on the streets for several years between 2014 and 2016. 
And when you say the capitulation, political capitulation, six, one, two thirds of all politicians who were elected on the back of the, that campaign in 2016, that election, two thirds of them opposed water charges, right? It's not a political capitulation. We voted for these people. This is democracy. This is about getting people into position that, 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 that support your perspective, right? Yes, Brenda Power, you have the money uh, and the position of privilege to be able to pay water charges. There's an awful lot of people in this country who can't. When you think 700,000 people plus are living in poverty, throw another bill at them. And, and, and I think the arrogance of some of these commentators to throw that stuff around so explicitly and ignore all the facts and the figures around it, which I want to get to very quickly in a second. But Harry McGee's piece today is the subtle one. It's the one where he talks about the numbers and how the 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 uh, the creaking system, the the pipes that are eroding and cracking and all sorts of stuff. So it's all about yet yeah, the issues that we do have, right? And in it, he talks about how, you know, even um, in terms of the amount of water that Irish water produces, one point seven billion liters per day, right? He talks about six hundred and eighty million liters of water being leaked, like forty percent of the water we produce is still being leaked through the system, right? Um, and then he talks about 572 million litres are being used by Dublin. By the way, just going to put a, a disclaimer on this. His figure is not mine. I did the figures myself. None of this adds up, right? But I just wanted to, to give you the figures that we're getting. And it says, an average household in Ireland is using 133, uh, or an average person in Ireland is using 133 litres. So when you use the data from the CSO, blah, 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 you multiply the amount of people we have, 4.904 million people, you get 652 million. So we're producing 1.7 billion liters of water every day and people are using 652 million, right? And they're saying that we have a water shortage and they're saying that households have to use less. Folks, the problem isn't about households using water. Even if you were to accept these figures, it, it acknowledges that it's not households that are doing it. It's the leakages and the other 400 million liters that's, I don't know where it's disappeared to because it's not in the figures you've just given us. And then you get to the last paragraph I have the last, but this is from a quote he's given, right? From the Minister of State uh, for the Public, uh, or for the Office of Public Works, Patrick O'Donovan, who happens to be a Fine Gael TD. I have the lash marks on my back from the battle over water charges. The poor fella, Jesus, he was in some battle over this. That has left it falling apart. The reality is that somebody is going to have to advance a serious amount of money to Irish water. And effectively what he's saying is about the leaks, the pipes, the rest of it, right? He's right about one thing. They need the money. So why did Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Labour Party and the Green Party, all when they were in government, cut funding for water services by 65%? 65% of a cut in any funding is going to leave it creaking and in bits, right? So, And then to blame people who opposed domestic water charges on it is just absurd. I've written up articles on this, right, several times. Um, and I've got the actual figures, the real figures, right? Um, Water usage in Ireland, we use less water than almost any other country in uh, Europe, including all of the countries with water charges like England, right? We use 25% less water than England who has domestic water charges. So if anything, the reality is the evidence shows us that when you have domestic water charges, it actually increases usage in certain uh, scenarios, right? We have uh, water availability. We have five times more water available to us compared to the likes of the UK or like the only countries in Europe that have more water available to them per capita is Finland and Sweden. And that's because of the size of those countries, right? Um, but here's the crucial one, who uses our water? Industry, businesses, 
use 77% of our water. Domestic usage is 23%. So you think about that. We use less than a quarter. Households use less than a quarter of the water that we produce. Businesses use three quarters. And who are they coming after and saying you need to reduce your usage because you're the ones that are, are, are causing this drought or this shortage of water. And that when you think about all of that and, and you factor in that leaks are, you know, 40 or 50% because Harry McGee made a, a, a really uh, strong play on this. He, he, he explained that the, even though 40% uh, of the, the or 680 million liters is lost through leaks, he says, this is a reduction of past losses where nearly half was lost. It's almost presented as a fair play to Irish water. They're only leaking 40% of the water they produce. It's mad. When you look at it all and you go, Jesus, why do we live in a country where people can't just be honest about it? Why can't we have an honest debate around a policy like this uh, and talk around who uses our water? Because it's not us. And this is, by the way, the data I have is from pre-data centers coming in where we have now some data centers using 2 million liters of water per day and not have to pay a penny for it. I don't see Brenda Power or Harry McGee having a pop at those. Instead, they're going after the granny who's trying to have a bath once a week. It's just so sickening to, to see some of this stuff. But anyway, that's my rant over. I don't know, um, Michelle, if you have any other stories you wanted to jump in on or whether you have any observations yourself on that stuff. Well, look, I can keep going on the climate stuff if you like and all of that kind of thing. So, you know, um, like there was obviously um, a lot of discourse and it seems like in the same way that journalists won't write about Irish water and data centres in the same article. It's like people won't report about the warm weather and climate change in the same um, article. Now it's kind of it started to change a little bit this weekend, I suppose, coming out of the heat wave. But there was, I think, the doctors of for the environment came out. They said, well, "Why isn't why aren't people reporting the the linkages here?" Um, RTE Climate Watch have been reporting that like RTE just aren't covering climate stories. Um, and yeah, it just seems to be this really like fixated on these like one-off events and not like the long-term links um, and there is an article in the Irish Times today and it talks about the president signing the climate bill which is uh, triggering the carbon budget process and I said I'd bring this up as well because like I found it very interesting that like I do, we, do we not usually make such a big deal out of like president signing a bill or whatever but this alongside obviously the one for indoor dining was signed at the same time and off the back of it um, a lot of people seem to be quite confused around well, it's, it's far, far right agitation, obviously, around the indoor dining bill, where they're saying, like, you know, there's now threats against the president for signing this bill, whereas people don't really seem to understand that it was actually the government politicians who actually have put this forward. They voted through the, they did the legislation. Um, our role of president, obviously, in Ireland is very different to America, but of course, a lot of the far right uh, agitators are probably American based and seem to have now put a target on uh, Michael D. Higgins' head which is very worrying and, you know, I just wanted to flag that as well, but I just, when I saw that, but yeah, so the, the climate bill is now in place. Um, and I think, uh, it, like already I'm seeing so much contradiction, like, uh, um, like, you know, we've seen government TDs and government ministers come out backing um, the development of um, a cheese factory in off the Waterford Estuary, Waterford, uh, Waterford uh, Kilkenny Estuary. And obviously that's quite close to home. So I'm, I'm bringing it up. And there was a huge lobby of like this whole like Tashka versus the government, you know, and who, who like, you know, what's going to happen, uh, what's going to happen here. Um, but what people don't realize is the reason that the cheese factory is going to be built, it's been built in Ireland is because it can't meet the Dutch climate laws. So it's, it's building its factory here so it can export the cheese back to 
to the country that they came from in the first place because our laws still allow for stuff to do that. But on, on the back of that as well, and it's not covered in any of these papers, was as well during the week, the government's long anticipated, well, I was anticipating anyway, um, report on the EU Mercosur uh, impact, sustainability impact report was released. And there was one article I read about it, um, and I think it was Irish Times, and the headline was something like, uh, Ireland will get one billion in exports, it's gonna be great great news um like the whole point of that report was to really look at the sustainability impacts and environmental impacts and that doesn't barely even features in the article the only article that i can find so i had a look at it myself had a look particularly had a look at the sustainability side of it and in all of it it says it's going to increase all of our all, all of the emissions that we're so we're in one hand saying we signed this carbon bill yay we're going to reduce all of these things we're going to meet all our budgets and on the other hand the government are still trying to push this eu Mercosur um trade deal which is going to be devastating it is going to impact on our own um you know our own efforts here but we don't just exist in this like island where climate change that we do here only affects us there's huge environmental impacts happening in the Euromacosa countries with you know deforestation increased um uh, beef um you know lots more land clearing transport aviation we live in a in a world where we're now seeing like at the same time we're having heat waves here we're seeing climate change really cl climate catastrophes happening other places such as the flooding in china and in europe like we can't not say that all of these things are connected so i'm going to be really interested to see how the government now try to put more spin because obviously the it have just run with irish times have just run with whatever the government said oh it's great exports we're going to make loads of money but not reporting any of the sustainability side so i'm re going to be really interested to see how that progresses obviously they've released it after the doll um is on recess which is definitely on purpose it was due to come out uh, in the last quarter um actually apparently the report was even done last year so they've been sitting on this waiting for them all to go on holidays release it now no accountability no no questioning off the back of it um well i won't forget about it. I'll bring it up <laughs> i'll be just pushing people to bring it up in september when they come back in but it's going to be really interesting to see how that conversation goes and if people are actually going to highlight the, the sustainability impact and why that report was actually made in the first place and sorry that was that was a bit of a rant um <laughs> but at this oh yeah I, i'm just kind of feeling a bit like yeah and there's, there's a lot obviously there the climate stuff but also on the climate stuff and i actually was a bit shocked today i was reading the news review section of the irish times um, and there's a david mac williams piece as well um and it's called the world's population is going to fall and I started reading this and was quite shocked. Like I actually texted Dave and Claire, be like, oh my God, I'm what am I reading here? Like essentially this, this piece, it's around population and stuff like that over the world. But it's it's basically linking population growth to climate change. And then it mentions like Africa being the only one increasing population. And to me, like it really just read as like really he was like normalizing eco-fascism in his article. Like, like this whole idea that like oh, it's humanity's problem that we have climate change and, you know, more people, more issues. Like, that is literally eco-fascism. And I know it's maybe it's a bit more clouded and a bit more covered, but, like, we can't normalise this kind of conversation. That's not, like, it's not that humanity is a disease or it's overburdening the planet. Like, just this week, Oxfam have released that the, the richest 10% of people are responsible for 90% of, or 50, 40, 49% of total lifestyle emissions. It's not that we have too many people on earth. 
we have too many rich people. We have too many rich people who are the biggest emitters, emitting 49% of life, like total lifestyle emissions. So why are we talking about the people in Africa? Why are we talking about them when the conversation of overpopulation and climate change? Like this is really worrying um, direction. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, for David Mark Williams to go in, it's not. It's really, really not that too many people is the problem. It's just too many rich people, and they're the ones. It's their way of living that is causing problem to us. It's not the people in Africa who, yes, of, of course, they they might have more population, but it's it, that is not like I'm actually. I was quite kind of gobsmacked by this whole thing. Um, it does talk about obviously other things as well, like like the the populations falling because of Netflix. Apparently, apparently it's bad for sex um and yeah it's, it's talking about like obviously like the changes in income life expectancy and career opportunities so like in, by the changes of income like we're the first generation that's poorer than our parents so I'm assuming that like we're not having children because we literally can't afford them and yeah and, and then there's obviously the, the the career opportunities the career opportunities that what like bring us more stress like and like stress is in, like actually linked to having like less sex and all of that so like is it because we're living in a much more stressful environment where we can't afford to live we can't afford to have kids we can't afford housing so we can't we're not interested in having sex because we're so stressed sorry but that, that, if you want to make that argument make that ar argument and don't fall down into this kind of eco-fascism oh africa is overpopulated so therefore they're they're the reason we blame for climate change absolutely not blame the rich people the rich people are also putting us under stress um, so that we can't afford housing, we can't afford children, and we can't afford all of this. It's an absolutely bizarre article, and really worrying. It needs to be called out. Claire, I think you wanted in on that, did you, before I jump in? All right, I'll jump in first then. Um, I read the article too, and one of the things that it really bugs me when I read Irish people saying, Netflix is bad for sex, period. They just put the full stop in. This is not an iron. This is not something we do here. You don't go. Netflix is bad for sex. Period. Because he's talking about how the decline in population, both in Ireland and across Europe and and the Western world, is because we're having, I think he says something like nine times less sex or something, um, than we used to 30, 30, 40 years ago. He said we're having less sex now than we did in the nineteen thirties, which was a promiscuous period. Uh, but you're right. Like we we do have the resources. It, it, the problem is that the resources are in the hands of so few people. Um, climate change is not down to that. By the way, one of the things that struck me straight away, and he does address it slightly in the article, is um, he talks about Africa as if it's a country. <laughs> um, it's not. Africa is a collection of dozens of countries. Like he, he refers to Europe a little bit in, in it as well, uh, and Asia. But like the way it's presented is that Africa is a country and the growth of population there is a threat and all the rest of it. Like, um, as if it's one homogenous place, Africa, and, and that there's no distinction between it. But at the same time, he does say Africa still doesn't have the population of Asia or of Europe or, or well, of, of Africa, the entire uh, continent does of Europe and the United States. But he talks about how ge geograph geographically you could fit almost all of the other continents into Africa because it's that big. So, I mean, it's a nothing story, but uh, in, in the way that he's, uh, that it's written, he's, it, it, but this is part of our problem is economists can't, like him, can't think of what the actual problem is, which is capitalism and perpetual growth and always having to, 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 to build and to grow and to grow and grow and look for more profits and resources. Rather than deal with the issue, we deal with population. The issue isn't uh, a population. The issue is the system, and, and the distribution of resources within that system, we can easily all fit onto this planet um, 
and not destroy it if the distribution of resources was used first and foremost to protect the planet and then to ensure everybody um, had a decent standard of living on the back of it. So rather than deal with those real issues, it's it's pointing the finger at, at poor countries. And forgetting to mention that, by the way, Africa per capita has among the lowest emissions in the world, right? So this is again, a, a privileged white person over in Europe pointing and saying, perhaps they're the problem over there. And you're going, well, I'd say you in a week use more, uh, you produce more emissions than an African person does an entire year. That's that's the reality of the fact. So, um, yeah, interesting story. But just to, to before I move on, I just wanted to talk about, in fairness to RTE, and we don't say that too often, uh, they did on RTE uh, yesterday to cover the um, starving children in Madagascar do not have the energy to cry. And it's um, the first famine in history that, ha well, it's, they're on the brink of famine, it says here in the article. but it's the first time that it's been caused solely by climate change. Uh, no other, you know, we obviously have our famine, which was the exportation of food um, and all the other bits that we've seen around the world over the, since, since that period of time. But this one specifically is saying it's down to climate change. And that comes on the back of um, uh, another article in the Irish Times there, CDU leader could get a bounce in polls in Germany after the floods. 81%, it says, 81% of Germans believe that their government needs to do a lot more on climate change, which is a fantastic figure when you think about the majority. And then you wonder about us ourselves, right? But I sent you guys a tweet earlier on that I, some, somebody did or made on Twitter um, this morning about China's extreme rainfall over the last uh, few days. Um, Dublin's 30-year average rainfall is 730 millimetres a year. Zhengzhou, which is the place that got flooded in, in China, is their 30-year average rainfall was 641 milliliters, uh, millimeters of, of rainfall. It said in one day, it got an annual amount of rain. Now, this is extreme, extreme climate change. There are dozens of people dead. Um, well, 33 people, it says, dead at this point and still looking for others. And same in Germany. We have, I think, from the recent flooding of there, 170 dead and 150 people still missing. And all we get usually here over the last number of weeks through this heat wave was ice creams and beaches. That's all they seem to want to talk about. No, until yesterday, till a famine hits, we haven't connected the extreme weather that we're having with climate change. We're just lucky that we haven't got the floods yet because that's, I was just saying it this morning, that's on its way here. We're going to have that probably in autumn or in a couple of years time. We're going to have a, a, like a year's rainfall in a day. And we've seen what we're like with floods, you know, in certain parts of the country, in Cork and in parts of Dublin as well. We can't deal with it. So um, what are we going to be like if we get what happened to Germany or what happened to China? So Claire, do you want in? No, I mean, I've got another story, though. Um, it's kind of been a big one this week and it's around the soup fronts. So we saw the homeless street cafe uh, had dealings with uh, HSE around kind of hassles and food safety and they, they they were investigated basically which was something that we've kind of known has been coming for a while there's been talks about regulating some of the soup runs and the the kind of the food tables in town for a couple of years now um there's been uh consultation between like DCC and outreach groups and things like that some really positive stuff and obviously some not not so positive and so, but what we've seen happen here is basically the, the HSC have come in and the food inspectors have said you don't comply with HACCP and that's basically like they're, they're talking about shutting them down and it, rather than engage with them 
and there's been quite kind of extreme reactions to it like personally I feel like uh, and I know a lot of these super ones and I know a lot of the incredible work they're doing I think that the best possible practices should always be be followed you know people on the street and people living in, in homeless accommodation deserve the um the same quality and standards as anybody else does I know a lot of the super ones are doing that like they're, they they actually are, are following a lot of these procedures they probably just don't have a way to to show it you know to prove it like I know that like one group I know particularly has it has a specific fridge for the food that they use they, they're actually following HACCP but without having say a HACCP qualification um, and one of the issues that has come in now is that the for instance the the HSC want members of the super run to pay to go and become qualified in HACCP and food safety independently which is just absolutely ridiculous when these super runs are providing a service that this, that's required because of state negligence people are hungry like there's people that attend these tables are people on the streets but there are also people living in emergency accommodation and people who just can't afford to, to feed their kids like there are people traveling in from their own homes with their kids and and taking food home for a couple of days from some of these tables so like it's it's just so shameful that a government agency is stepping in and shutting down a group that are stepping in because the government have already failed so yeah really would like to see the government um work with these groups you know, provide the training where necessary, send somebody in to help people set up the necessary requirements so that they can show actually we are following these. They're never going to be able to, to have the same setup as a professional restaurant or professional kitchen, but that's not what's needed. You know, like some of this is just pretty basic food safety standards that I know a lot of these groups are already doing, but it's just without the kind of experience and qualifications to be able to prove that they can come in and shut you down. And it's just, it's so shameful. And it, Again, that whole cycle of the fact that these groups are stepping in to provide a service because the state has failed people so drastically and then a safe service comes in and tries to shut them down. Like it's just, it's an awful look all around. And I think this is only the start of it. You know, like they are going to move through all the other groups as well. And some groups have more resources than others. You know, some groups are in a position that they have actual um, refrigeration units in a specific building that is used specifically for the service. Like the Muslim Sisters of Era, for instance, they have a lot of services and they operate out of a specific place and then they operate their, their food uh, or their, their food tables from there. So they're able to, to prove what they're doing and they're able to comply a lot easier than people who are cooking in their kitchens. But I mean, the idea that it's better for people to go hungry than it is for people to cook from their own kitchens at home and bring food in, it's just absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, I think this is the story that's gonna roll. I think it's a really awful look in the HSD and they need to be, they need to be working with people, you know, and, um, uh, yeah, this one is going to get really bad. Yeah, um, it's, it, it, it leads me to a very sad story there on page eight of the Irish Times covered by Kitty Holland. Um, the ashes of a young chef who died sleeping rough in Dunleary, County Dublin, will re be repatriated to his native Lafayette next week. And when you read through the article, it talks about how he was a chef. Um, and even though, you know, he was working, he was sleeping rough uh, for periods before the pandemic. But when the pandemic hit, he um he lost his job and it just it just strikes me as like the lack of a safety net that's available there for people who really need it um, and we've known this for a long time but it's another name um to, to add to the to, to the list of people this year that have died on the streets uh claire you wanted in on yeah, that uh, but I, I suppose you make a really good point there as well i that story is devastating and I love that Kitty actually really humanised them because we've got to a stage now we talk about figures so many people die on the streets that we just talk about figures um, but these these tables do so much more than provide food which is already an incredible service I mean they're literally stopping people from starving sometimes um, 
but they also like I know services that provide they provide clothes they provide sleeping bags they provide hygiene products but they also accompany people to um I know people that accompany people to like um family law appointments to medical appointments like people who have been so let down and they become advocates for people and it's just there's so much more than just a food table which is already incredible service and I think that the fact that the, the HSE haven't recognized the importance of what these people are doing is just it's just desperately sad I mean and it shows a real lack of compassion and empathy within some of our state services again because what they're basically what they're saying is the alternative is better having you know not having these services provided there again like you said this is the safety net for a lot of people this is the only safety net for so many people these tables operate seven nights a week different groups will operate them whether it's the gpo or central bank like different groups have popped up over the years and like i said i do agree with some kind of you know not necessarily regulation but interaction with the state resources support help people do this in the best possible way but not not what they're doing. I mean, what they're doing is absolutely disgraceful. It's shameful. It really is. I, I said this about Apollo House. Like uh, w- when it when it happened, like you think that the state would have kicked in and said, "You know what? You're all right. What we'll do is we'll we'll give you the resources that are necessary to make sure that this is a permanent uh, facility." Because um, you're doing a quite a jo- good job, and look, you've got all the resources in terms of human activities and, and and activists and all the rest of it. And it strikes me the same with the soup run stuff that. The state, what it should be doing is going, Jesus, you are doing a great job. You do use our safety net. We're not doing the job, half the job that you are doing. Here's some grants to get yourself some facilities. Here's some um, staff to, to help you with the bureaucracy of this stuff. Let us help you to help everybody else. And instead, what we're getting is this overly bureaucratic nonsense, of, of which could end up you know, hurting a lot of people. But just going back to the ashes um, of this chef, his name, um, the body of Igor Sernikovs, uh, who is only 33, was found by another homeless man on Monday. Um, what, what's what's nice and, uh, about this story, and as you said, Kitty Holland really does a good job on it, but she talks about um, how the homeless man was known by, known to Sandra Perry uh, and who, who others who part of the Helping the Homeless ran a soup stall themselves in town two nights a week until 2018. But Sandra Perry went and did some research and found his family and were able to notify them. And, and that, that human element, we must acknowledge as well, uh, of, of the people who are doing this kind of work and um, that Claire started off the discussion around. So I don't know, Michelle, if you have any other stories you want to come to before we... Yeah, yeah. So the whole reason I bought the Irish Independence is because I knew there was going to be a story in it that might not be anywhere else. Um, and it's about Sock Dems. Um, so the Social Democrats Party um, are, have, are in the papers. The title is Leadership Contest Now on the Cards for the Social Democrats. So essentially the story is, and it was leaked last night online as well, um, that a letter has been written by and signed by a number of prominent members, uh, both elected and otherwise, um, of the party. Um, asking for a leadership contest um, and this is also coming off the back of a number of things where the chair of the branch in Limerick County um, has resigned and also um, it just emerged last night that the party's general secretary Brian Sheehan has also handed in his notice but apparently that was handed in last week but it only came out last night as well but also I remember a Limerick councillor as well stepping down from the party there just seems to be a number of resignations as well over the last week you know when some people like post on Twitter I've resigned I see I saw a number of those from young members in the last week too so I feel like 
although this is asking for a leadership contest and the actual story itself is quite tame in, in, in relation to the actual writing in this paper and the, the letter that was furnished itself, I think there's probably a little bit more to this than people realise. Like essentially what's happening is the, in the, the, the six years that Social Democrats have existed, there hasn't been a leadership contest. And um, there's supposed to be one six months after a general election, but it was decided this year because of the pandemic that that would be held off. So it's six years without a leadership election. Um, and yeah, so essentially it seems to be that it's been called. The, there's quotes here from Councillor Kat O'Driscoll who's saying, you know, um, it's supposed to be um, a member-led party. We should review our structures and our leadership. Um, but already the party, parliamentary party, has come in with a statement saying we stand behind the leaders. So if the parliamentary party have already come out, in, and when this is supposed to be a member-led party, surely the parliamentary party should be listening to this and saying, yeah, absolutely. Let's give the opportunity to our members, seeing as this is a member-led party, to have that discussion. And if there's no concerns about the leadership, then no problem. Let, you know, get people behind them, reinstate them. No, no bother at all. But this already seems to be that the parliamentary party have almost taken this as a attack, but also have set their position very clearly, as in, we're behind them, um, whether the members are or not, as far as, as far as I'm reading it from. But it's just interesting. There has been absolutely no opportunity to have a conversation around you know the direction of the party the direction of the next general election that this is all mentioned in the article there's murmurings of like you know maybe some of the other TDs might go for it maybe they won't maybe it will just be uh, a re-election of the, the leaders that are currently there but that's what that's the story as it is in the independent and um, I feel like it's probably just the tip of the iceberg and we might find out more but maybe someone else has more to say about that Claire yeah I think this is gonna like this is a story that I think we're all I mean obviously listen Full disclosure, I was a member of the Stock Dems. I left two years ago. I remember about a year, year and a half. Um, and I, like you, I think the bigger story is kind of the reaction to this. So this was an internal memo. This was something that was raised by, you know, mostly young members of the party um, who didn't, and they've been criticised this, which I, they've been criticised no matter what they do. They didn't come out and say, we want the leaders gone and we want this person to replace them. They are calling for the kind of democratic processes of the party to be instigated, to have the conversation. They feel like the, the vision of the party has been lost, that there's a lack of direction, and that regardless of who would be elected, that having the conversation and having a contest is a healthy thing for a party to do. Um, within eight minutes of it being leaked, the, the parliamentary party had come back with that statement. I personally think that those conversations are going to happen internally. I think there's an element of just, you know, public facing politics about this, like this is something that um, it, it was kind of face saving and they needed to, they weren't going to kind of throw the leadership under the bus. I don't doubt for a second that those conversations are going to happen, you know, like they can't not happen. You couldn't, you, I don't believe it's possible to shut down your members like that and not, um, and that not just go really bad for you. I think that, yeah, there's, I've seen a couple of people leaving over the past couple of weeks and it seems to be that they, a couple of people have written publicly on Twitter, like they feel like they, they're being shut down when they try to, you know, they try to instigate, um, you know, different initiatives within the party. There have been, and it's been written in the paper about there have been issues, particularly Roshan Shortall, um, you know, and I just want to say, first of all, like, I think Katrin and Roshan are excellent TDs a lot of the time. I think they've done incredible work and I think that um, they have an incredible legacy in the doll, even though, you know, I disagree, particularly Roshan on, on certain issues. Um, there's been issues in the party with, a sex work policy and 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 kind of more progressive socially kind of progressive um policies in the party that people have kind of been shut down and um and, and people aren't happy about that so i know some people have left recently because of specific issues like that but this is again having left the party myself this is a long-standing thing i think there's a 
I personally think that, you know, the leadership think that some of the, the members are um, maybe politically naive. And there's been a bit, like, bit, bit, bit of commentary on Twitter around that, basically insinuating that these people are politically naive, that they don't know what they're doing, that they, they, they just want change for the sake of it because they didn't name. It's very clear by any of the articles you see and even senior, senior sources within the party that Holly Cairns is the the you know, preferred choice for the next leader that she has the this well of support and um and public support even like how that happens if it happens um you know it's left to be seen but I definitely think the reaction and how it's been handled publicly it got me thinking last night about loyalty I saw some high profile members you know putting up pictures of themselves with Catherine and Roisin and talking about their loyalty and it is the to me is it is one of the worst things about Irish politics like you should not be loyal. Like I believe in having people's backs when you know they're they have good intentions and they're good people and you know, like giving people the benefit of the doubt always. But this blind loyalty to people and parties over what's right is just so wrong. And it's one of the reasons I didn't like being part of a party, because I can feel how you get there. I can I could feel myself kind of starting to justify little things that I wouldn't have before because you know people are good people and they're doing good work with the best of intentions. So you tend to kind of minimize. But for me, that's the most harmful thing. You have to look at a situation. You have to look at um, what's best for a party and what's best for the country at large. I care about a party's internal processes and how willing they are to sit with criticism and sit with internal discussion. If they can't have those conversations internally, they're in no position to lead anybody. And that goes for all parties. Because if you can't, if you believe that you're right and if you're dismissing the the kind of concerns or the input of your own members what kind of respect are you going to give to the people of the country when you're when you're in position of power so that's something that I feel really really strongly about um I think that it, I, I think we because the letter was leaked so early as well when there's 16 names on it I don't doubt for a second that there is a lot more people in the party who would have signed that and there's also a lot of people who probably would have signed it who would have been a little bit afraid to you know because they would have feared um some kind of backlash. I mean, I know I left the party after the situation, not long after the situation with, with Elika Zombie, because I wasn't happy with how the party dealt with it, but also kind of what it exposed for me and how some people in the leadership were unwilling and incapable of um, hearing the concerns of the party. And that was, it was more what it exposed to me that was a real worry. It was like, this is much, a much bigger thing than just one issue. And unfortunately, I don't think enough has changed. So I think the party does need new leadership again. I think you can be an excellent TD and not necessarily be the best leader for a party. And I think that they need to have that conversation because I do think people are leaving. Good people as well. And I see, my worry is that it would go down this, it's not nearly as bad, but that it would be similar to the Greens where enough of the really good heads and the kind of good lefty people leave that the balance of decision-making then changes how the party operates completely. So yeah, I think it would be interesting. I think the statement from the parliamentary party, to be honest, was just politics, it was faith saving. You know, they, I think all parties would do something like that. They're not going to come out, and I think they could have done it better. I think they could have said, "We're going to have some engagement with the members." You know, we're going to have we're going to have some internal discussions. But uh, I I think there's a huge amount of respect there for Catherine Roshian as well. So and nobody would want to to be seen as disrespecting them. So I just think there's a lot more involved in this than what it looks like on the face. But I think it's going to roll. I think it's great to see young politically engaged people try to trigger the and as well. It, it actually happened, Michelle is. After the general election, the six members of the parliamentary party sat around and decided that they were happy with the results of the general election and they weren't going to trigger a leadership contest. So that was that was why the leadership contest never happened. Um, 
so I don't think it's unreasonable for people to just want to have that experience and have those discussions and seeing the the backlash and the loyalty this blind loyalty on Twitter and um, people attacking their own members it's just really really disappointing because I think that is going to be more damaging than anything that has happened out yeah I think I mean I'm not going to get into it you've, you've both covered it well there but the only thing that that struck me was that the letter itself didn't you know say anything negative about the current leadership or anything it was just you know let's have a bit of democracy within the party let's follow our own rules and and, and apply what, what what's supposed to happen but the reaction from the parliamentary party was to say you know we stand with these leaders now the the, the letter might actually be written by people who support Roisin and Catherine as, as maintaining the leadership there uh, but they just want to have that democracy and have it out which I would have no issues with whatsoever because I think there's a across whether it's political spectrum trade union spectrum in Ireland I think there's a a lack of democracy and I think we should have more democracy not less of it um but uh michelle you have another story you wanted to move on to yeah just quickly in the irish independent they've covered the story actually about insurance so the insurance sector is lacking in ethics and principles not a news new not a new headline to be fair like come on we know this guys but actually um there is a piece at the moment where and the first line actually was what does the insurance industry have to be due to sanction in this country now i shudder at the word sanction now especially like this week with increased sanctions against cuba um but yeah so it's talking about the insurance industry they're literally doing whatever they want. Um, they went into the Oireachtas Committee and said that they deny that they um, are up to no good. But now the central bank have said that they've found that insurers are engaging in dodgy practices of increasing home and motor premiums every year for loyal customers. So this is this is called like differential pricing or price walking, whatever you want to call it. But essentially, they're using software to identify who is less likely to change insurers and just accept price increases all the time. Um, so this is absolutely like disgraceful, obviously. But apparently this practice was highlighted three years ago by this Irish independent and nothing's really been done about it since. It's been happening for years. Everyone's known about it. Uh, they denied about it in the Rockdus and the central bank are now saying, no, they are doing it. Um, but at the same time, yeah, so obviously the figures that we're looking at actually is some insurers for nine years or more on pay are pay average 14% more on private car insurance and 32% more on home insurance than the equivalent customer renewing for the first time. Like that's a huge difference. But anyway, that, that's the talk of that. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I know I've said it here before, but we're still not seeing any sort of payback for this, the whole, the introduction of the rules around the personal claim payouts as well. So the payouts have been capped. We're seeing some people challenging that or, you know, conversations around it, but we're still not talking about whether the consumer has felt any of those cuts at all and how that's going to be communicated or monitored or anything. Um, so yeah, interesting to see that, yes, they're doing this price stepping. We know they're doing that there. Um, are we going to wait another three years to find out that, oh, well, we never got those cuts after we put in those limits for personal payouts? Um, because I think it's very clear at the moment that that hasn't happened. Um, so we'll have to see, like, I know Sinn Féin released um, something a couple of months ago saying that they did research that, you know, that this there hasn't been cuts. But a couple of months on, we're still not seeing any cuts as far as I can see anyway. We're actually getting more scandals about more increases about for loyal customers. So, you know, stay loyal to the insurance companies, which are luck we know at this stage, we need a national insurance company. The privatization, the lack of transparency and lack of accountability is just disgraceful in the industry. And it, look, just, it needs to be done. And it, it reminds me of the, the rant I had, I think it was last week or the week before about free market capitalism doesn't exist. I mean, 
uh, both of those stories there, you know, in a right wing person's mind, um, what they'd be thinking is that all the, all the market will kick in and this will sort it all out and people will have lower premiums and all the rest of it. Um, and if you're loyal and you stay with someone, you'll get a lower premium and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't happen because they've conspired this system to make sure that those in power get the, big, the greatest profits that they can possibly get. I just have, um, well, one, well, two more stories, I suppose. And it's again, it's from the Irish Times and it's a throwback to a... Uh, uh, an era that we would probably like to forget in one sense, but 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 it's important that we talk about it still. Uh, and it's page 11, and there's two big stories there. Uh, the first one is the UDA killer nicknamed Top Gun behind a dozen sectarian murders. And this is the police ombudsman for Northern Ireland, Marie Anderson, uh, did not name the killer of 17-year-old Catholic teenager Damien Walsh in her long-awaited report into the so-called 1993 dairy, dairy farm killings. Um, and this is about uh, the UDA, really. Um, and they're, I found it just but not bizarre. Not that I didn't think that this stuff occurred, but the fact that there's evidence of it and they know all about it is uh, that every year, the this guy uh, who, who everybody knows killed uh, Damien Walsh, his name is Stephen McKegg, um, that they had, the, the UDA had these awards, uh, an award ceremony for, you know, who killed the most Catholics in the year. Um, and you're just like, what kind of a society, you know, breeds that type of attitude? But he he was afforded the nickname Top Gun because he was the most prolific killer and winner of that award almost every year. Um, and obviously he was very, he was notorious. And the only reason we can see say his name or, and talk about him is because he died of a drug overdose at the age of 30. Uh, but people say that he killed a lot more than the dozen killings that are, are referenced there. But anyway, getting back to the victim, Damien Walsh, um, who who was murdered by him, by Stephen McKeg. Um, he, he was murdered four days after the IRA exploded a bomb in Warrington, it explains. And that was the bomb, if people remember, that killed Jonathan Bell and Timothy Parry. Um, and because of that, nobody really heard much. Like the killing of Damien Walsh was completely swept under the carpet. Nobody really heard about it. But this report is, is interesting in, the, in that they're looking at it. But his mother, Damien's mother, has a few interesting quotes here. And the, the only reason, well, not the only reason, the reason I'm talking about this is because of what we discussed last week, I think it was, about the amnesty uh, for killings during the Troubles. Justice is still outstanding. The proposals by Northern Secretary Brandon Lewis to ban all prosecutions for Troubles, troubles killings are totally immoral. This is Damien's mother, because obviously she can't get any justice out of this. And there are hundreds, thousands of people more impacted in the same way. And then the second story, again, in relation to the North, uh, and this is another big one, pressure mounts for inquiries into OMA bombing following ruling. Um, so this is uh, the, the UK and Irish government are under pressure to set up inquiries into the OMA bombing after a judge ruled it was potentially plausible the attack could have been prevented, which is uh, going to throw this open to um, further investigations, hopefully. Um, but that 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 the, the judge has found that there should be investigations into into this, and he says, um, the uh, Justice Horner says, I am therefore satisfied that the threshold under Article Two of the European Convention on Human Rights to require the investigation of those alleg allegations has been reached. Um, so it's a good news story in terms of the victims of Oma, which. Uh, was the biggest atrocity in in the in the history of the troubles and more, killed more people than than any of the other uh, bombings or events. Um, but uh, another quote from the investigation or the the finding from the judge: any investigation will have to look specifically 
at the issue of whether a more proactive campaign of disruption, especially if coordinated north and south of the border, had a real prospect of preventing the OMA bombing, and whether without the benefit of hindsight, the potential advantages of taking a much more aggressive approach towards the suspected terrorists outweighed the potential disadvantage inherent in such a, a, an approach. So it's an interesting line, interesting story, and hopefully we'll get to the, the bottom of some of this stuff uh, as quickly as possible. Um, I think we're out of stories now at this point. So I just want to thank uh, Michelle and thank Claire for, for joining here today. Um, I want to thank you for listening and do us a favor. If you can share this podcast with your friends um, through whatever means you can, WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, get the word out that we're doing a review of the, the weekly newspapers because we buy the newspaper. So you don't have to, um, we're part of the, this is the week at work and we're part of left block. Uh, you can find out more about us on patreon.com forward slash left block. That's left block without a K. Uh, thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you all soon.